Welcome to the Behold Do Good podcast. We're your hosts, Todd and Ashley Marchant, and this show is about strengthening families through whole being health. At a time when there is so much that can distract, discourage, and disconnect us, our family is on a journey that is led by three core questions. What whole being practices can we implement so every member of our family can have increased capacity, save your life more deeply, and use their gifts to do good? How do we translate and apply what we learn into simple, tiny habits that work amidst the demands of life? And how can we use our increased capacity to better care for others in our family, community, and throughout the world? Each month, our family focuses on one core area of whole being health. We take the biggest challenges we're facing in that area, seek out answers and direction, and do all we can to implement what we learn all the while sharing our journey through this podcast so you can learn and grow alongside us. We joyfully invite you and your family to join us on this whole being health journey. Hey everybody, this interview is the last interview of this month's focus on physical well-being. Next week's episode will be Ashley and I just sharing what we've been working on and learning as we have focused on improving our own family's physical well-being. But before we get into the interview, I just want to let you know about a free five-day challenge we're kicking off on April 24th. The focus of the five-day challenge is to strengthen the mindfulness of your kids so they can process their difficult emotions more effectively. There are limited seats in the challenge, so if that's of interest, head on over to beholdogood.com to learn more and to sign up. I hope you enjoy this interview. Welcome back to the Behold Do Good podcast. We are super blessed and honored to have Courtney Zenz uh, on today. Courtney is the founder of Tiny Transition Sleep Consulting and is on a mission to change how the world views sleep. And I just think the work you're doing with families is amazing. And, you know, we've talked about this. In fact, we were just talking about it before starting the recording here, Courtney how there, there's just this sense of alignment with our missions as we think about families and we think about just creating a life of joy that whatever comes, like come what may in life, that we find a way to find joy in it. And that that's just a, a kind of shared mindset. And for you, one of the things you've learned through your experiences, and we'll get into this in a minute, is just how foundational sleep is to creating that life of joy. And, and so you are doing amazing work and have won a bunch of awards and have created this amazing international company and to help families improve their sleep. And so we just want to thank you for being on the show today. I'm so blessed to be here. I really love sharing just not only the mission of tiny transitions, but just a little bit around personally, why, why I do this and why I got into this field and uh, just super honored to be here and hopefully share some education that that changes some families' perspectives and also, you know, helps educate on what we're trying to do, to your point, to feel good, to feel rested, and to feel joy. So thank you. Well, we're so glad to have you here. So we, we've got a list of questions. And the way that Ashley and I really like to take these interviews is we we just take a step back and we realize that the way that it can feel just the most authentic is when we take the very real things from our life, the challenges we face with our family of, of with our four kids here at home, you know, what, what challenges are we facing and ask questions related to that, because it always seems to represent many other families as well. But before we get into that, I think it'd be great just to have you share some of your story. Like, how did you get to this point where you're doing the work that you're doing? You know, our name of the company is Behold Do Good for a reason that, 
you know, we desire to to do good in the world. We want to support other people who want to do good in the world. And there's so much about needing to create our own wholeness that enables us to do that. And you're doing wonderful good. And so I'd love just to hear your journey that's helped you to get to this point. Yeah, absolutely. I think since from a young age, I have shared in a like-minded mission of be whole and do good. You know, I think I was raised with those values. I worked really hard. I, you know, I've had three jobs since I was probably 17 years old, put myself through college and I was just always a hard worker that came naturally to me. And, and, you know, I worked my way up the corporate ladder, had a successful career in marketing and a fortune 500 company. And then I had a baby and I was in my early thirties and I was like, I got this. I got this. I'm maternity leave is going to be like a jam. I got uh, milk shooting out. I'll, you know, I'll get sleep. I'll have a good schedule. And then I had a baby and I was like, okay, well, this is nothing like I thought. I was not instantly connected in the way that they say motherhood, you know, kind of happens. And um, I felt very overwhelmed and alone. I'd lost my mom when I was 25. And so I didn't have like a village to go to. My dad, love him, but he's not... um, he's not like a great person to give me like mom advice, you know? So, um, I had my son and I felt really lost and alone. And it was a phone call with another sleep consultant who I'm actually very good friends with now. She does some business coaching that I coach her in today, even 10 years later. Mm. And, um, it was that phone call that really changed things for me because all she did was offer a voice on the other end of the phone. My son was eight weeks old. I was in sleep delusion and I was going back to work in a couple of weeks. I'm trying to breastfeed. I'm trying to be the super mom, trying to be the working mom. And I was like failing at all of it, you know, and um, perceived failure, right? We're always our worst critics. And just that phone call with her, I got off and felt confirmation, which I think as new parents, that's what we're all seeking. Like, are we, are we messing this up? You know, cause there's nobody there to really tell you that. And um And like, I got just immediate empowerment, like, oh my gosh, I want to make other people feel like I feel right now Mm. because I didn't have that. You leave the hospital and they're like, good luck, your baby's strapped in, have a nice day. (laughs) And that was it. And I'm like, okay, and now what? You know, so I just felt this immediate like calling, if you will, of this is my purpose. And um, so while I was still working full time, I went back and went back and got sleep certifications, adult pediatrics, my lactation designation, my postpartum doula, like I was in it, you know, I had finished all the schooling fun stuff with my master's degree and such. And um, just kind of did it on the side for years and tiny transitions was born out of tiny transitions in all aspects of parenting, right? Like a tiny transition for a mom back to work, tiny transitions to better sleep. And That was really how it all started, you know, was just me feeling like a total failure as a parent of my first kid at 34, you know, going, what are we doing here? You know, I I love the, the emphasis of tiny transitions too. Like there's a lot of things that I think caused when I reached out to you to just feel connected to you, Courtney. And one, one of those is we talk a lot here about tiny changes, big impact that like mm-hmm. those tiny moments are really actually the the ones that make the biggest difference in our life. And it's interesting thinking about it in terms of, you know, we, we tend to most often talk about what are the tiny adjustments we can make, the tiny habits we can create that ultimately have a big impact. 
but it's really interesting thinking about the transition moments of our life. Like those are so important. And as we can work on those tiny transitions and improve them, like what a, what a blessing it can be to life. Totally resonated with the message on your website around feeling joy. Every night when I go to sleep, I ask myself if I feel joy. And that's like, as soon as I read that, I was like, yes, because life's hard, man, working full time, having kids, doing the things. And, um, I just want to feel joy. I don't need to make a bazillion dollars. I don't need to have 95 houses. I don't, you know, I want my kids to be happy. I want to have a happy family. I want to be financially secure, but I also more importantly, want to feel joy, you know, and what, what we're doing. I've worked in sleep for eight years coming off of a big corporate career that I had that was really good, but it mentally pooped out. But I basically left corporate America working 80 hours a week and being a full-time mom and was like, there's, this is for the birds, you know, and um, that chronic sleep deprivation upon having my son is what led me down this path. I'm like, there has to be a better way. There has to be more support for parents because I am failing at both my corporate career and being a mom. And then fast forward four years ago um, in December, and just last week, I had a double mastectomy four years ago and stomach cancer from a genetic mm-hmm. mutation that my mom carried. So they took my whole stomach out. I have no gallbladder. And then I did the double mastectomy like three months after that. It's a very rare thing, um, but it's a total wake up call. Let the doctors are like, this is going to kill you like shortly. It needs to come out now. And I was like, wait, no, I'm healthy. I like do yoga five days a week and I like eat clean and I like sleep eight hours a night. Like, what are you talking about? They're like, you're one of 1200 people in the world with this and it'll kill you. And I was like, mm, okay, that's annoying. But you know, last half full, don't want to die. And so it was like a huge shift in my mindset four years ago to just, you know, where I am today, which, you know, is, is pretty cool. So there's a lot of good stuff, but I think I resonate so well when you reached out. Cause it's like, I just want to raise good kids. I want them to realize like there's people in the world that aren't as blessed as we are. And, you know, we try to do yeah. things as a family within our means to make sure that their understanding of that, you know, and we have some fun things we do. Um, but yeah, so thank you for having me. We can jump in. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. I'm like a chatty Kathy. I'll stop talking. Oh, I love that was awesome. I'm thinking, so to give a little background of our family, we have a little baby up to nine. So we have kind of a wide range of sleepers and sleeping habits. So I would love to start kind of in that infant stage, when to start sleep training a a baby and just how to help parents, like you described (laughs) your eight week and being like totally sleep in craziness. We totally experienced that with our first, but just how to help parents and that progress of helping infants to learn how to sleep better. Anything you want to teach us about that? It's, I love speaking about this because I think people have this predetermined idea of what we do. Right. And I think it's general across the board. You're either pro sleep training or not. Right. You hear the term and you're like, oh, you teach baby to cry it out. It's like, no, no, no. Let's start with foundations, right? I work with clients the day they come home from the hospital, right? You don't know what you don't know, right? And so the way I categorize sleep, right, is first and foremost, it's a skill set, right? We're all born with the innate ability to sleep. How you learn to fall asleep becomes an expectation of the process, right? Right. 
So when I work with families, I try to explain it like with newborns, you're sleep shaping, we're building good foundations, we're educating families. Most new parents come home and they don't know that a kid should only be awake 45 to 60 minutes without getting overtired, right? That's a huge number. I had no idea. I'm like, no, baby's good. They've been up like four hours. Super overtired yields hormone imbalance, yields short naps, lots of crying, poor eating, right? So I think when you set this foundation with a newborn, you're not only teaching parents like, okay, what is an awake window? Why does it matter, right? What should a structure look like? How do you maximize the intake, whether it's breast milk or formula? How do you optimize overnight sleep so everybody gets a little bit of shut eye? You know, should the baby nap for six hours straight in the day? Um, You know, all of those questions, like with newborns, it's setting a foundation, right? You know, there's a statistic I read once, and I don't exactly remember where, but it was, but it's basically around um, a beer has the same impact on a person with four hours of sleep as six beers has on a well-rested person. So it's like your brain after a couple days of like chronic sleep deprivation, it's basically like you're hammered all the time. You know, I read that once. It's not great. Um, you know, um, and that was a UCLA uh, sleep disorder center. I was doing something with a different client before about it, but um, it's just crazy. Like sleep deprivation, like you're not a good person. Like I was not a good mom if I didn't sleep well. And my husband was the same. And we had like a really nice balance, which I teach a lot of my newborn clients. Like, so if you're listening and you have a baby and you're going, how do I do this? Like we're two weeks in and I don't know what I'm doing. Start with knowing your awake windows, 45 to 60 minutes, and then talk with your spouse or partner about like balance of responsibility. Like my husband uh, basically took the 10 p.m. dream feeding. So we had our kid in bed every night at seven o'clock. They were in the crib and I would go to bed like I would pump, go to sleep by eight, take a shower, brush my teeth, do all the things. And then I was out and I didn't hear anything. And, um, and then my husband would take that 10 o'clock feeding where he'd go wake the baby up. Luckily the baby was always born. I have two kids. One was born in March and one in April. So there was always like some sport event on March madness. was the first. <laughs> So he was fine, like staying up, watching the thing. And he would go up at 10, grab my son or daughter, feed them from either pumped milk or formula, depending on the day or the week. And, um, put them back down to sleep. And then I would handle the rest of the night. Cause if I was nursing, I had to get rid of the milk anyway, you know? So we kind of had a nice balance. Then he was up a little later, but slept the rest of the night. And then I was up the rest of the night, but slept that first chunk. And at least gave us both a bit of like mental stability. I think as moms, we try a lot of times to be like, I'll do it all in the name of something. And it's like, don't do that, man. You know, I had such severe postpartum anxiety and depression and I had no idea. And my husband had no idea. Like, he'd come home and I'm like, hey, honey, dinner's ready. The pump parts are great and the grass is cut and I weeded. And then I'd call my girlfriend and I'm like, I am falling apart, you know? And I didn't know that it was anxiety. I didn't know it was depression because I never had either, you know? So it's like just taking a breath, like, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I'm pretty type A. So, uh, you know, for a while, my girlfriend's like, you need to talk to somebody like you're, you got a little anxiety going on here, you know? And I did, and it was helpful, but not for me, you know? Um, And then I just around 12 weeks got more confidence. And that was with my first kid. And then when the second one came, I had that confidence. So it kind of got better and easier. 
But as a first time parent, like it's a lonely world, which is such a shame, man, because it's supposed to be just such this like beautiful time in your life. And you have this elation in one side and then this total dysfunction in the other. <laughs> yeah, as you're as you're describing it, Courtney, I would say, you know, for us, and I think it's true of just anyone when you when you become a new parent there is there's just so much that you just you can't expect and you don't know and that causes you to feel lost and and you know we we certainly went through a lot of that and i think you you almost re-go through it with every child that you have to a certain extent but with with a new set of tools a new set of expectations and understanding that that helps and but what you're describing, I know for us, as we've just worked through our own mental health battles, it, we very much have seen that connection of sleep and mental health, that when we're getting more rest, mental health is so much uh, stronger and and the challenges are still there, but you have more to draw on to be able to meet those challenges versus you know those nights where you just don't get much sleep. It's so easy to feel anxious or more despair. And, and so I think what's part of what you're describing, you know, is just giving that hope that there actually is, there is a path to take that helps to improve that. And I think what would be helpful, you know, underlying in, in some of what you were saying there is just uh, that a key in the process is our kids learning how to fall asleep mm-hmm. in, in kind of their own way. And you, you described that at times people come to you with, you know, a two week old, a three or four month old, a two year old, a five year old uh, that needs to improve in that skill set. And I, I would just love knowing that there's kids of all ages, uh, it, both in our family, but also in the families listening. If you could just kind of share what are the key principles at those different developmental stages mm-hmm. to help a child, regardless of where they're at now in that skill set, to begin to learn to fall asleep on their own in in a not not that. I think one of the things that we always want to balance is the end of the day and the beginning of the day, I just see as being these really wonderful connecting moments with our kids, you know, that we want it to be this positive connecting moment and we want to preserve that. Uh, but at the same time, not have bedtime, take an hour or an hour and a half or, you know, whatever it might be to have the boundaries that allow us to have our connecting time at night and us to get to bed at a good time. Mm -hmm. And, and so anyway, I think, the question again is just what are some of the key principles that help enable our kids to be better at falling asleep on their own? And maybe I we think could go through a couple different stages of different ages of kids. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So with newborns, you want to look at two things that you need to optimize, right? You need 45 to 60 minutes of an awake window that keeps the sleep pressure, which is called adenosine. It's a sleep pressure hormone that keeps it at bay. If kids go too long as newborns without taking a nap, essentially their brain gets into overtired and our brain's an amazing thing. And this is for any age where if that happens, it stimulates it, right? So it's like trying to help you stay awake and then kids kind of fight as babies going down and you've probably seen it. You have four kids, they're crying excessively. You're doing anything you can with like the S's to try to like get them to go to sleep. Um, So avoiding overtired. So really paying attention to those sleep cues and maximizing intake, right? Um, children shouldn't sleep more than I, I like to nap, nap limit for even newborns two hours, because when they fall asleep, they're typically eating every three hours, give or take, right? I'm not somebody who says you can't feed them for three hours, but as a general rule of thumb, every three hours throughout the day gives them five feedings. If they're up at seven and they go to bed at seven, 
ballpark, right? Um, they're getting nice five feedings in, which is going to then be a feeding around 10 o'clock, a feeding around 2 a.m., and then a feeding around 4 a.m. that gets them the intake. Babies, whether it's breast milk or formula, need 24 to 32 ounces for optimal growth, okay? And this is neurotypical, born to term, nothing else going on, right? 45 to 60 minutes, and then uh, they need 24 to 32 ounces, Okay. When you start to move into infancy, people talk about sleep regressions. It's the three month sleep regression. It's the four month sleep regression. It's the six month sleep regression. You could literally type any month and sleep regression into Google and you're going to get sleep, <laughs> right. And I think a sleep regression is the fact that sleep was good and has now turned bad, right? The biggest one is probably that three to four month that you hear the most about. And there's two things happening. When babies are born, they sleep in what's called stage-based sleep. So you're 50% of the time in REM sleep, 50% of the time in non-REM sleep, light and deep sleep. Okay. Around three to four months, you actually build a circadian rhythm. So now your body is going to have that body clock that you have the rest of your life. Well, the problem is your body clock actually transitions cycles like every 45 to 60 minutes. So if you only rely on the boob or, you know, rocking to sleep, make no mistake that in between those cycles, your kid's going to wake up enough like we do to go, huh, I'm awake. Oh, but I need you to go back to bed. So that's why a lot of times parents see this like newborn sleep that's actually around eight weeks, kind of getting pretty good. And then it goes down the toilet because they're in these different stages where when they move to cycles, if they don't have the good hygiene to be able to settle independently, they're going to look for you. So they're not doing anything wrong. They're just, that's how they fall asleep. That's how, you know, it's a skill. That's how they understand they fall asleep. So then when you move into this infancy age, at whatever the age is, right, you've always got to make sure you optimize intake. But the number one mistake parents make, hands down, is the wrong timing or having a kid that's overtired because overtired triggers adrenaline and cortisol, right? Mm -hmm. So if your kid is not on the right nap schedule or the right total daytime sleep to maximize overnight sleep, right? The American Academy of Sleep Medicine says between four and 12 uh, months, you need 12 to 16 hours, right? Every kid's going to be a little different, but that's the window of optimal health. And um, if they're not getting it or they're not getting it at the right time, or you're like, my kid's not tired, like you generally then see trouble settling, tears at bedtime, multiple night wakings, early morning wakings, and they wake up crying. And that's almost always a sign that kids are overtired if they're not waking up just kind of chilling in the crib, but they're waking up like stage four yelling, right? And then with toddlers, it shifts to behavior, right? Somewhere between 18 months and two years, it's more of a an overtired play and a behavior play. Like they're on one nap a day. If they're at daycare, that nap is set. It's 12.45 to three o'clock at almost every daycare in the country. So if you're trying to keep your kid up till nine o'clock because you're a, a midnight late owl, right? And your kid hasn't had a nap since three o'clock, they're strung out, you know, make no mistake. So that's going to cause them to be up more or to come into your bed and try to get in there and cuddle or to get up early. Because again, it's that hormone like kind of stimulation imbalance coupled with behavior, you know? So it's like sleep shaping, newborn, sleep training, infant, behavior modification, parent coaching with a toddler, you know, setting boundaries. But I think when people hear that, they're like, 
they think that it's always like this negative connotation. I'm like, kids like boundaries. They love structure and routine. It, it minimizes their anxiety, right? Anxiety is huge. I see a ton more clients now, even as like school age children since COVID with just that increase in anxiety and that lack of clarity as to like what is going on today, you know, and there's a product and I will happily talk about it on every show I go to because it was life changing for us and it's called a Zenimal. So it is a mindset meditation device. Um, Anna McSalka is the founder. She's out in LA, like in the Orange County area. She's a fabulous human who would also probably be a great guest on the podcast. But um, she created this product out of anxiety as a child. She couldn't leave. She couldn't go to sleepovers. She couldn't go to camp because she had such bad anxiety. And her parents were really forward thinking at the time and got her into meditation I found the product after I had a very rare stomach cancer situation that kind of came out of nowhere. And my son thought I was going to die. And as a parent of a four-year-old trying to explain that mommy's not going to die and he's like falling asleep on the stairs so he can hear your voice, it's heartbreaking. And it's like, okay, buddy, but you have to sleep. Like sleep is the foundation for which the house is built, you know? So my own personal struggles with, you know, that it's like this product. I use it with almost every toddler client now because they they can settle. It's like a two-year-old can turn it on, a 10-year-old can wear it. And it's this like device-free meditation turtle for kids. And we fall asleep to it every night. Like I put it on for my daughter. We call it ablutions, but they put the ablutions on and they go to sleep. And it is part of that routine, which is important, but also helps them with their confidence. You know, my son gets mad because I'm like, come inside, no more nerf. It's time to go to bed. And he's running across the yard like, use your breath. <laughs> 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 so it's like, you're, you know, I'm trying to instill these like things, but that product for older kids that might be struggling with like anxiety at bedtime. And you're like, all right, Courtney, reward charts aren't going to cut it, but what do I do? avoid your kids getting overtired at any age and like look for options that aren't like, here's a tablet, watch the sleep train meditation, nothing against it, but like uh, YouTube at two in the morning, you know, trying to, trying to calm yourself back to sleep. That's not exactly great for the brain, like shutting down. So the Zenimal is like such a lovely product for them. We use it in our house. I talk about it a lot because it really has helped our family in, in like, you know, sometimes my kids will say something or, you know, they'll, they're like, I want a thing, you know? And I'm like, you know what, buddy? Like not everybody has the thing. And I'm like, we need a gratitude meditation. I'm like, drop, you know? And I get the turtle and we sit and do like a gratitude meditation. Like I'm trying to teach my kids to be kind and do good and, you know, sleep well. And it all is tied together. Hmm. So true. I love that. So I, I think about, you know, that bedtime routine, you talk about how important the kids like routine and structure and how much that can help in, in preparing for bed and that behavior modification. Yeah. Everything you shared, I think is so helpful for, for those of us with newborns and, you know, thinking about those wake windows like that, that to me, 45 to 60 minutes, again, you mentioned it's helpful. It's really helpful for us. Yeah. But as I think about once we get into that toddler age and, and we are now focused on behavior modification to help improve their sleep in the bedtime routine, are there certain things that you just always recommend are like, or, or at least key principles that really assist bedtime to go well. So first step is make sure they don't, they're not overtired. 
But beyond that, you know, what are some of the key things that just help bedtime to be successful? Yeah, so there's sorry, two- I wanted to say one more thing along with that, because you were you were saying that when they're overtired, they get that in that hyper stage. And we noticed that that was one of our key questions of like, okay, so we want to know about the routine, but also like, what do we do? Is there an ideal time and stuff like that to help avoid that hyper stage where the adrenaline kicks in because they're overtired? (laughs) Yeah. I think it's so hard as parents, especially with multiple kids, because you've got a lot going on, right? There's different schedules, there's different events, there's different sports, there's different perceptions of like how much sleep, you know, kids need, right? Um, My kids still go to bed at 730 and they're six and eight. And my son is an early riser. He always has been, but he also napped at daycare until he was five. You know what I mean? So you kind of got to rob from Peter to pay Paul. So whatever works from a family standpoint, look at total sleep need, right? Some kids are late nappers as far as like the age they drop it. Some kids drop that nap early. If kids drop the nap early, like three years old or even four sometimes, like it depends on the pressures. Like I would say no later than seven o'clock for bedtime. Like, You'll start to tell the the window of overtired based on age. One, they're going to flip to hyper because their brain thinks they're trying to stay awake. So it's like they snorted a pixie stick, right? The <laughs> other is um, just trying to catch them. Uh, again, I like between seven and eight o'clock kind of for those first like eight years because you can catch them in the unwinding process, right? So to bring it back to like routine, we do something fun to go upstairs. We have penguins, seven bucks. Hey guys, five minutes, we're going up. When the penguin goes off, like we all fly upstairs or if it's bath night, getting colored bath tablets or I buy like the, I like get nervous of all the synthetic dyes and stuff now. So I take my little whole foods, natural dyed food coloring. And I'm like, first one upstairs gets to pick the color of the bath, you know, and they run upstairs. So it's like, you kind of try to make it fun. You fly, who's going to be a dinosaur going upstairs, you know? Um, but I do it every night where if they're not taking a bath, okay, we're going to wash our face. Then we're going to read a book tonight. You get mom, tomorrow you get dad. And like we switch. And so keeping a boundary while also making it fun. When my kids were younger, um, you know, my husband would be like WWF wrestling with them. I'm like, can you not rile them up before bed? You know, he's like, it's our fun time. And I will say the kids did just plop down and pass out. But then I also teach them, like, if we could not be jumping off the top of the bunk bed to try to get a, a slam dunk, you know. <laughs> Whereas when I do bedtime, it's like, we're going to do our meditations. I've got lavender diffusing and we we read a book and we, you know, like, so our bedtime routines looked different, but we also had boundaries that said like, hey, tonight it's mom, tomorrow it's dad, or tonight we're going to flip flop or Hey, this week mom's traveling. So dad's up or next week mom's traveling. And sometimes if you know, somebody's like out of the house for something, girls night, traveling, work, whatever. And kids, they naturally want mom. I think a lot of times, I don't know if it's the same way in your house, but like my kids, my husband, we joke and I got him a t-shirt for Christmas that said, my favorite people call me uncle because he's like, they treat me like an uncle. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, and so they always want mom, but if I know like I'm going out or I've got to travel for work, I'll say, who wants mom? Like, who do you want mom or dad tonight? And I know they're going to pick me. And then I'm like, okay, well then tomorrow you get dad knowing full well, I'm on an airplane to speak somewhere, you know? So like, I try to set it up where there's less anxiety by like things 
becoming curveballs, but I also make it fun. So it's like, we do this in our house with like popsicle sticks. And it's like, Hey, if you do what you're supposed to, you get to pick something in the morning. And if you don't like you're picking a consequence, you know, so there's rewards and consequences. And it's like as simple as this, or, you know, my daughter's super motivated by like gumballs and I'm not a big candy person. So it's like a big deal for her to get like one jelly bean. Like she'll cut her left arm off to have one jelly bean. Whereas my son, he just wants to go out and play football with my husband for five minutes, you know? So you've got to figure out with your kids, like what works for them and then empower them. Like we teach a lot about, like when we work with toddlers and school age kids, it's a lot of education around parenting more so than sleep, if you will, right? Because most of the behaviors that are manifesting at bedtime are actually manifesting during the day. I just finished with a toddler client and the kid was throwing their food every time. And I'm like, well, what did you do when they would throw their food? They're like, well, we would pick it up and put it back in the cup. And I was like, all right, well, like, was there any consequence associated with the fact that they were making the choice to consciously throw their food across the table? And she's like, no. I'm like, Okay, well, the next time they throw their food, you say, all right, well, you're obviously done for today with your dinner. So I'm going to take that out of the way. And that's it. They don't get to eat, you know, and it's like there has to be some ramification and you use the term consequence and people are like, oh, how could you? You know, and it's like, you know what, if my kid's about to jump in the middle of Fifth Avenue, I'm going to grab them. I don't want that to be a natural consequence. Should have looked both ways, buddy, you know, so it's the same idea of just creating a little bit of that boundary because kids are constantly pushing out of just trying to figure out the independence. Like it's not a negative thing. They're just trying to see like, it's like a dog fence. Like until you start to get whacked a couple times, like you're not quite sure where the boundary is, you know? Interesting. Okay. Can you explain those popsicle sticks to people that are just listening? That looks yes, like sure. So all you do is take a little tiny cup of uh, rice, right? Whatever. I don't know what this is. Pharaoh, maybe I just grabbed whatever was in the cabinet and you take a couple popsicle sticks and on the top you have two different colors. So you have red and then you have green or blue or whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, and some of them have consequences. Some of them have rewards, but your kids have to be vested in this process. If you're just like, no, blah, blah, blah. And they don't care about that thing it's not going to have an impact, right? As I mentioned, my daughter, dessert. Ooh, that's a good one. She loves dessert, right? So on the popsicle stick, the red is a reward. And so it kind of sits down where if you can't see it, but it's in the rice, okay? And then the blue is a consequence. So if you didn't make the right choices, you have a consequence, right? So this one, my daughter writes on them to help me, but this one is no play date, right? So if you didn't have a good night of sleep or you made choices that you shouldn't have around something, you have to pick a consequence stick and there's different consequences based on what they like, you know, no sleepovers, no dessert. Ooh, that's a big one. No prize box, like <laughs> no play dates. Right. So you're kind of customizing them to the family based on like what your kid and you can have one for each kid, like what they like, because behavior changes when the consequence impacts them in a way they care about. You know, I had a client that be like, all right, you're going to go to timeout on the stairs. And I'm like, what are they doing in timeout? They're like, they just sit there and go, I don't care, mommy. I go to timeout. And I'm like, then it's not a consequence. Like they don't care. They don't care. They're sitting on the stairs, pick them up very nicely and just set them in their room. And their room had makeup and nail polish and like play dresses. And like, I mean, it was like the Taj Mahal in that room. And the kid like for 30 seconds was like, you'd think she was in prison. She was just sitting on her bed. 
you know, there's no locking of doors and walking away. It was literally like, just close the door for 30 seconds and give her a minute to like, take a breath. And she opened the door and the little girl was like, I'm sorry, mommy, I come downstairs now, you know, because she didn't like that time out versus the one on the stairs. So sometimes it's like a situational change, right? Because mm-hmm. if they don't, they don't feel the impact. And I hate saying it that way. Cause I, I don't want people to think it's like physical feel, you know, but yeah. if they, if they're not bothered by the consequence, like, why would you change? Like if you could come into your room every night and go, can I come in? And you let them in, why would they stop coming in to ask to come into bed? Right. So if that is happening in your home, I would say, build a boundary. You are not welcome in my bed, but you can sleep on the sleeping bag on the floor. Your choice, right? And allow them to be in control. It's a lot about helping a kid feel empowered. Like we teach a lot of that. You can brush your teeth or I will do it for you. Would you like this book or this book? I want that book. That's not a choice. You could pick this book or this book. Okay, great. Then we're not reading tonight. What? You know, and you'll see real quick, their behaviors start to change. And typically, as I mentioned, like the behaviors you see during the day manifest at bedtime, almost identically in some capacity. So if you're kind of sitting here today listening, going, oh, got some things with my toddler that are not ideal during the day, I would encourage parents to assess that behavior first for the period of like five days and start to create some soft boundaries that you, you know, that you're comfortable with around things. And um, you will almost immediately see a shift at bedtime because they're testing the waters to see like, what's good, what's not good, what's going to be allowed, what's not, you know, and it's just part of their development. Like they're trying to figure it out like all of us. So that's really helpful just to realize that as we think about bedtime, if there's certain challenges we're facing there with their behavior, that if they are pushing boundaries at bedtime, that it's likely connected to ways they're pushing boundaries during the day. And just to take a look at that bigger picture of our day and say, how can we reinforce naturally and comfortably some boundaries during the day as a way of solving some of our bedtime challenges? It's, it's just helpful to, to see that bigger picture. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Courtney Zenz. Don't miss part two published on Thursday where Courtney addresses bedwetting, creating a supportive sleep environment, areas that parents often worry about but that are actually totally normal, as well as her best overall advice and encouragement for parents. Also, don't forget about checking out our free five-day challenge going on next week by visiting beholddogood.com. Have a wonderful day.